0: This is Karen Kelly, and you're listening to An Appetite for Life. There's a great mix on this show, just various topics, amazing guests, and the occasional celebrity girl. So my guest today is Des burke Kennedy and he's author of Murder, Mutiny and the Mugglings, Born and Bred in Dublin. And he's actually on my show next week for authors and more. But I had to get him on my show today because he has had such an amazing career that I wanted to share it with everybody. So welcome, Des. It's lovely to have you on the show today.
1: Well, thank you, Karen. Lovely to talk to you.
0: So how's the weather in Sunny Dublin? How's the weather?
1: <laughs> we've had a heat we've had a heat wave for what, three, four weeks. And yesterday we had a couple of showers and this morning it's back to about 22 degrees centigrade and the sun is back in the skies again. It's beautiful.
0: Wonderful. We've had the same heat wave, however, it's... 17 degrees today and still a bit cloudy and rainy and a bit chilly i have to say okay. so you've got the better weather today you've got the better weather so so des congratulations on the book murder mutiny and the mugglins which we are going to talk about on my show next week but we will touch on it at the end of this show as well so this is a true uh, true 18th century saga isn't it uh, off ireland's coast and of course you live um overlooking the mugglins is that right
1: it's right out there.
0: <laughs> wow, so you're looking at it now as you're talking to me. That's fantastic, yeah. oh, wonderful. So we'll talk about that at the end of this show, but let's talk about your fabulous career. So of course wow. you're retired now, but tell us all what you <clears> used to do. What was your main kind of job?
1: Well, sometimes, Karen, dreams come true and sometimes you can be lucky a lot of the time. And what happened was when I was at university, I always loved travel. Yeah. Um, and during summer jobs, I always tried to do something weird. One summer I worked as a lumberjack in Alaska with some Native American Indians. Wow. So it gave me a kind of a restlessness, I suppose. So when I left university, my idea was to become a management consultant. Now in those days, there were only two companies in the world that did this on a big scale. And the leader was a company called Arthur Anderson & Co. And they were based in Moorgate in London. And I was the first Irish graduate to be hired by them. So I said goodbye to Docky and arrived in the city of London to start off a career.
0: And what was that like, leaving your hometown?
1: Well, I I had itchy feet, so I was delighted to be able to do it, to be honest. But then uh, when I went to university, it was very unusual. Trinity College, the university I went to, is an extraordinary university. But um, in the year I completed, there were only 14 taking finals with me. And it was almost one-on-one tuition, and wow. all of us went overseas because in Ireland at the time we were all interested in big business, and you had to get overseas uh, experience in big business, and most wanted to go to the United States to work with multinationals. So that was my motivation as well. So off I headed. And you
0: studied Russian, didn't you, and philosophy? So why, I why Russian?
1: Yeah, nie gawary Wonderful. It's, a it's a beautiful language. Our own native language, Irish, um, the sound is not unlike Russian and it's easy for us to pronounce Russian words. But I don't know about you, but when I listen to a deep baritone Russian tone, it's, there's something just romantic about it. And when you think of Dr Zhivago and all of these early images, um, I guess that's what made me study it.
0: Wow. And did that really help your career going forward then?
1: Not not really, Karen, because no. I didn't really keep it up. <laughs> I was able to bluff my way through with schoolboy Russian. It helped, it helped a little, and especially when I met people in Russia and could use just a few words, but I was always terrified they might get me into a conversation as well.
0: So you retired in 2002. So what yes. were you doing at that time? What was your role?
1: Well, the last company I was chief executive of was part of the Continental Group based in Hanover in Germany they had sales of about 14 billion. It was a big, serious operation. Um, And I always enjoyed just the the thrill of, I suppose, trying to identify the problem and motivate people so they enjoyed actually solving the problem. And that's really what management is all about. So I was lucky enough to be managing director. I think it was at four different companies. And the role was the same every time. The product differed, differed, but the role was the same, to try and motivate people and get them interested in what they were doing. And hopefully make them financially benefit from that. So it was quite easy, really.
0: And also during your career, you had a great involvement in water skiing, didn't you?
1: Well, when I lived, I lived in Chicago for a few years and got involved a little there. But when I came home to Dublin on occasional visits, there was a club called Golden Falls Water Ski Club, which is just over the mountains behind me here. In the most <laughs> I- idyllic place, a valley of about a 16 acre lake and there was a shed on the side of the uh, lake and it had a little small sign on it, Golden Falls Water Ski Club. And I looked at this thing and I thought, okay guys, get your act together. You have a beautiful lake and you have a shed. So I joined the club and in September, I think it was, they made me chairman the following May. (laughs) And that was the start because one weekend I went down with a sledgehammer and I broke down the tin shed. So Come the to, members yeah, came yeah. down the next day and they said, look what he's done. But, but I knew that that would have caused all of us to say, hey, listen, let's do something right. Yeah, let's so rebuild we, we it. Built, Let it. We built yeah, the most yeah. incredible place. It was beautiful. So that got me involved. And then I skied as well, of course. I was never, never uh, that great. I skied in competitions, but not international standard. So that, uh, that was the bug. But the beauty of water skiing is in my business career, I traveled all over the world. And wherever you go, if you bring your slalom ski with you and your gloves, you can ski anywhere in the world and the equipment is the same. So that kept it going all my life.
0: We see, I think it's really difficult to do. I've tried it once or twice and I couldn't stay up for more than two seconds, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Is it all in the balance? What tips can you give our fellow skiers?
1: That was not your fault. (laughs) No, really, that was the fault of the driver. Really? I I could get a granny age 98 or a child age three up on skis. The driver does that. You have to be very gentle. You have to assess the person's weight, see what their strength is and just nudge them up onto the top of the water. You can do it with almost anybody. So it wasn't you, it was the driver.
0: Oh, I'll take that. I will take that every time. But it really is a beautiful sport, isn't it? And it looks like they just beautifully glide along the surface of the water beautiful
1: it, it's, it's stunningly beautiful we used to ski at night at 10 o'clock it doesn't get dark here till ten thirty at night we'd ski into, into darkness but when the sun is going down and the, the water is, is is red from the from the sunset and you hear this beautiful sh- 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 yeah ah,
0: gorgeous stunningly oh. beautiful i'm definitely going to give it another go and i'm going to definitely going you know, to tell the driver to just be aware have
1: you ever seen water ski jumping yes mm. it's incredible and a lot of the commentaries i did for various tv companies was based on water ski jumping because i i knew most of the top jumpers in the world since they were young kids i knew their parents names i knew some of their grannies' names so it was a lovely story to carry it was just so so enjoyable
0: so we can't just brush over that you know because that's my next point you did commentaries for tv and everything for water skiing and working so tell us tell us about this who well, are you commenting for? Commentating? Well, for? Well,
1: well, first of all, don't tell anybody because I, I used won't. to leave. <laughs> I used to leave my office sometimes. Used to leave my office sometimes at about ten o'clock on a Friday morning and saying I might be late back on Monday, and in between then I would either spend the weekend maybe in southern Florida or up in Canada or somewhere in Germany, and I always could get back. Maybe how midday
0: exciting!
1: Always <laughs> oh, lovely, and you know the lovely thing was. You know, when adrenaline is flowing in your body, it it helps you do everything. So I would get back to my office, just dying to clear the pile off my desk and others would look kind of sleepy and oh, here he comes again. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So what was it like? Are you really kind of up close and personal on the side or you're following in another boat? How does it work when you're commentating with Well, That's a
1: good question because it varies enormously, but say when I worked for channel seven and channel nine in Melbourne, Australia, we were on a scaffolding tower about four stories high, looking down onto the water. So we had a brilliant, brilliant view. And then we had cameras all over the place. And then when GoPros came in, we had even more cameras all over the place. So we were looking at monitors beside us and the real thing down below and commentating on that as it went through. We did 14 hours live over three days every year for a good few years on Channel 7 in Melbourne, Australia. It was brilliant. What other
0: channels um, across the world have you worked for?
1: Well, I shouldn't say worked for. I was involved with the sport and did commentaries on the events. And we did recordings of these events. We packaged it and we called it the World Cup Series. And those were taken up by um, TV networks all over the world. In this part of the world, it was Sky. So yeah. they didn't employ me, we, they used our property. Um, and that was that was that was the fun. I remember uh, this. This is, uh, I suppose, the silly side of it that the viewer doesn't see. Um, I would leave here at maybe dawn flight at 5:30, 6 o'clock in the morning in Dublin. And I'd fly into Bristol, and there is a studio about an hour's drive, a taxi drive from Bristol that is used by Sky. So I would get in there probably 7:30 in the morning, get into a glass box, and we would throw up. The, the, the material we'd edit on screen and I'd have to be a hysterical lunatic pretending I was doing it live on the site. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just such so much fun with, with people coming into the office, having their breakfast, looking at this mad Egypt in a glass box, being hysterical. It was great fun.
0: Yeah, you clearly loved it, obviously, didn't you? So oh, I have funny. a question and I don't think it's a deaf question. So you're retired now yeah. and do you still ski?
1: I do. I thought you Uh, would do. But I'm not at the very moment because I had foot surgery eight weeks ago from an old water ski injury. It was an old water ski injury. It was a bone I damaged in my foot and I didn't do anything about it. And it was starting to be a bit of a problem. Uh, I had an Achilles pain. So when I went to a surgeon, he said, that's not your Achilles. He said, there's a bone in your foot that's moved out to the left and it has to be put back in again. Ooh. So I won't I won't show you my scar, but it's that length. <laughs> well,
0: that's long enough, isn't it? So when do you think you'll get back on the water again?
1: I'm hoping in about four or five weeks.
0: And do you mind asking me how old you are?
1: I am 78, I'll be 79 in November of this year. I am an old person. Wow,
0: that's incredible. You are not old, you're young at heart, clearly. So obviously, with your love of water sports, it's rubbed onto your son. And he's also a really good water skier, isn't he? Is he professional himself?
1: Well, he would like to be, Karen, but he has a business career. And to be a professional now, the standards are so high. Like in all sports, yeah. you've really yeah. got to be on the water every day of the weekend. That's the trade-off. He's not going to do that, but he does enjoy it. He's much better than I ever was.
0: Yeah, and you also have a daughter as well. Does she have an interest with the water
1: he loves water skiing as well and in fact it's lovely now because I have six grandchildren and we bring them all down to the water and we can't get them out of the water. It's, it's oh, lovely. That's
0: incredible isn't it? That really you, know is. with
1: very, you know with very young children in, if they're cranky and um, the way to put them to sleep is to put them in the car and the noise of the engine somehow puts children to sleep. Yes it well, does. The, the same works with a water ski boat so when they were very young we used to put them in the front seat of the boat and strap them in with their jackets and they would go fast asleep.
0: <laughs> oh, beautiful. So you were also a keen photographer and possibly still are. So tell us about your photography experience.
1: Yeah, I, I just love photography. My dad had um, a Zeiss, a whole range of Zeiss lenses. And he used to have to send them to East Germany when we were very young kids. And I remember the excitement of getting these packages back with lenses and whatever. And I suppose that triggered it. But when I got involved in water skiing and then commentating, as a commentator, you have the best seat in the house. You have to be where you can see everything. So I started to get involved seriously. I'm a Nikon Nikon person, and I use a 300 mil 2.8, a 50 mil, and a couple of short ones. Now the big one, big lens is like this long, but when you're up in the commentary box, and I, as I'm broad, as I'm commentating, I can just turn to the camera, take a click, and go back in again. I got some incredible really? shots. Like Nikon have a magazine called N Photo, and they featured a good few of my photos a few months ago.
0: Wow, that's incredible! And you're also on the Federation for IWWF. Is that the International Water Skiing Weightboard Federation? That's
1: correct, Karen. Check been, me.
0: Did my yeah. homework.
1: <laughs> I've been involved in that for, I suppose, a tw- oh, quarter of a century, nearly, and I was in charge of marketing and media for the World Body. Uh, so that helped with my TV um, knowledge as well. But um, w- one of the great things about that is that you can stay involved forever. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy and I can be an older guy and still be involved. But last year I decided I had too many other projects that I would step out of the world body. And about two weeks ago, um, I can share a secret with you. I'm going to be inducted into the World International Hall of Fame in October of this year. So I am absolutely... Wow. Over the moon and back.
0: Wow. So can you tell us more about
1: that? Well, it's a lovely honour. We have about 30 million people involved in our sport. And every two years, the world body um, looks through those who have contributed on an international basis. And this could be um, a water skier. It could be a pioneer. It could be an equipment developer. And if you've made a, a worldwide contribution of any significance, you're in the running. And I was just, I got lucky again. I told you earlier, I was born lucky. Well, I got lucky again.
0: But you've clearly put a lot of energy and time into that sport. So it's well-deserved. Well, thank you.
1: I wouldn't like to count the hours I've spent on planes. Uh, I think it was three years ago, four years ago, I counted. I spent a quarter, I traveled a quarter of a million miles in one year. Uh, that is, that is no fun.
0: So you've really built up your air miles then.
1: <laughs> you, <laughs> you must get a few free trips. Absolutely.
0: So let's move on to your fabulous book, Murder, Mutiny and the Muggling. So that's a mouthful of a title. So tell us all about the title, first of all.
1: Well, it works backwards in a way, uh, because as I mentioned, I I think a little earlier, when I look out my bedroom window, I can see an island called Docky Island. And beyond that, there's it's really a big, large rock, uh, quite big. And it's got a little beacon lighthouse on top of it. That is called the Mudlands. And everybody in the area where I live knows that that's a very dangerous area. And when I was doing some research over the last couple of years, I discovered that 13 ships have sunk on that rock. Now you'd wonder how would they be so stupid as to do that? And the reason is that in the era of sail, um, once you were caught in a storm, you couldn't just turn on the engine and get ashore. You were, to a large extent, taken by the wind. And this island is facing the southeast, and a southeasterly gale, if you're not lucky, will blow you onto that rock. So it's Gosh. frightening that 13 ships have gone down on that rock. So that's the muglins.
0: Wow. And that's a view from your, your window where you live. That's fantastic.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, when I was young, uh, younger, there were always stories around this area about, oh, the, the pirates and the Mugglands. And I you know the way kids talk about things like this, and you never go beyond that because you get distracted into something else. Yes. So it's stuck, it, it, it stuck in my mind and I wanted to find out about that. And that was the start of the book.
0: And also, they were quite um, scary stories, weren't they? So as a child, you were brought up with stories of these pirates, but they were murderers as well, weren't they? So you must have been frightened to death going to bed as
1: a child. Listen, that's not my fault. That's Robert Louis Stevenson's fault. <laughs> but, you know, when you think of kidnapped and Rob Roy and all of those stories of that time, Um, I I had an amazing father he used to read my sister and I to to sleep every night and we wouldn't last that long so it'd be 20 minutes reading but he bought um, a collection of the classics and that went from oh David Copperfield all the way through to to the murder to the mutiny and murder books and pirate books so those stories were stuck in my head and I could never get them out of my head so I I was doomed.
0: So why did you decide to write a, a book about this?
1: Well, what happened was, and this is quite a coincidence, so the Mugglings are out there. I've always been intrigued by the era of piracy. And a man by the name of Podrick Laffin, um, about 20 plus years ago, gave a lecture to a historical society near here. I wasn't at it, but he produced a little tiny book of notes on his lecture. I think there were seven or eight pages in it. And it was the story of what happened with pirates on the Mugglings. And that was an outline of uh, an extraordinary story. The Muglins were featured because they were used um, to scare off others who might be thinking of piracy. And the the very end of the long story, which I won't spoil, is that two pirates' bodies are hung on a derrick out on the Muglins so that passing ships would say, what happened to them? And somebody would say, they were pirates. And then you'd say, I'm not going to be a pirate. We're not going to stop
0: here. We're not going (laughs) to... (laughs)
1: obviously it was a deterrent
0: oh my goodness so it's a true family story which took place in the 1760s at a time when when pirates made an enormous impact on international trade so but but growing up you had a different view of pirates so how does that compare as an adult you know what what your thoughts were because obviously as a child you more or less thought they were heroes didn't you
1: to some extent, and I suppose if you think of any movies that children see and there are pirates involved um, before, you know, it, they're dancing and singing on deck, and it, it wasn't a bit like that. And in fact, the courts in England in particular, if you were a murderer and condemned to death, you had the option of going to sea. So they saw it in that context, but just a, a little background or insight into it. If you today wanted to pay money to a friend, you would use Stripe or PayPal or whatever gone it's an electronic transaction yeah up to the end of 1700s early 1800s if you wanted to move any amount of money jewels uh, ending of value from one place to another to make that same payment you had to do it on a ship
0: it's amazing and isn't the
1: it gold and the silver came in the main from the caribbean and south america now the smart guys the crooks the bandits the pirates they knew that all of this stuff was on the water nearly all the time And that was why the focus that pirates had was on attacking other ships. It was because they were carrying out the money transactions that we just take for granted today. There were vast fortunes on the oceans all the time.
0: It's amazing. It's so interesting. I mean, it still happens today, doesn't it? To a certain extent. And one film I do remember watching with Tom Hanks was Captain Phillips based on a true story. That was a phenomenal film, wasn't it?
1: Amazing. And you think they weren't chasing gold on board. They were chasing the ship, which had a value. So that's no different. They saw something of value and they wanted to take it. Fascinating.
0: Fascinating. But you did some incredible research for this book. And is it true it took almost 20 years to write?
1: Well, not really. It was in my head for 20 years. Yeah. The real hard research, to be honest, was probably over a five-year period. Um, I was picking up bits and pieces of notes along the way, thinking that someday, if I had time, and I never did have time, I I might put this all together in a book. And thankfully, COVID lockdown was a blessing. That gave me the time to do something I always wanted to do.
0: But you also travelled far and wide for this research, didn't
1: you? Well, I tried to put myself in the shoes of a man called Captain George Glass. And to be honest, I I think... Anybody could write a book about somebody that they really admire and respect. I think that little spark makes you want to find out more about them. And that happened to me. When I got to write and read and research George Glass, I thought, what an extraordinary character. I'd love to meet him today. Um, I think we could have a long night together sharing stories. But he started very humbly, the son of a Protestant Presbyterian minister whose grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. So he was brought up in Dundee in Scotland and a really tight, um, strict, religious Scottish background. You can imagine what that was like. Yeah. But in his mind, he, he was intrigued by walking down the hill to the harbour, the shoreline in Dundee, where pulling into shore were whalers coming back from overseas. Um, in other words, people from around the world. But the, the extraordinary thing about Dundee, and very few people would know this, including myself until I researched it, it was almost a world center for the making of ropes, which are made from hemp. And hemp is also used in making sails. It's also made used in making the canopies that went over the um, explorers who were going from the East coast of the United States to open up the wild west. Those lovely old uh, caravans you see with the canvas on top, that probably came from Dundee. So George would have seen all of this. Now, if he was like me, and he probably was a little, he would have said, wow, I wonder where they're going to or where they're going from. And that set the spark. So instead of going to the church, he decided he was going to see. And that started an extraordinary career.
0: And what I love about the book as well is is what you've just mentioned. You talk about the ropes and how the locals were used to just stepping over the rope because they never had the space in their factories, if you like, their warehouses back then, to to house these ropes and they'd go on for miles wouldn't they and it just became the norm
1: it went out the back door and down the street until somebody said that's the right length and they just cut it off so Amazing. There'd, be no,
0: there'd be no public liability if anybody tripped over it i'm sure they would have done back in the day
1: you probably would have been locked up for tripping over it it would have been harsh
0: oh so it's such an incredible story And for you to be reminded of it every day, looking out of your window as well. So tell us about when you actually launched the book, where, you know, did you do it locally? Did you do it in the shop or online or have you not quite done that yet?
1: Well, that was a real challenge because um, as COVID was still in flow, having a proper book launch with your friends in and as... uh, a lot of people said to me, you know, you're guaranteed to sell 50 books, 70 books that might do it. And right. i well, I, I can't. I, so what I did was I have a brother who's an actor. His stage name is Ben Keaton. And Ben said, well, why don't we just do a little chat and we'll do a, um, a, a, a little tape on that and put that up. So we did that for a bit of fun. And then I sent the link for that to a lot of friends. And that probably gave me... Three or four hundred orders for books very quickly, that's and I was great. amazed. then because I, I said, "Oh, here I come! I'm going to be a million bookseller any day now." But your friends run out, and at the end yeah, of that, that's, that's, that's when difficult. the job starts. Yeah, yeah. it is
0: difficult. Uh, well, it, it you know it's been incredible talking to you uh, today, especially about water skiing as well. I'm certainly going to look at that again for the future for me. True, um, congratulations again on the book *Murder, Mutiny, and the muggling So, for our listeners. Um where can we get this book where is it available
1: Well you all it's a little difficult you have to remember the title of the book so it's Murder Mutiny and the Muglins. Yeah. All one word dot shop. So if you go www.murdermutinyandthemuglins.shop you can get it online.
0: Fantastic. Well I wish you all the best with the book and all the best for your water skiing in the future.
1: Karen, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. And um, I hope we'll talk again soon.
0: You've been listening to An Appetite for Life, sponsored by Daybank House Dental Practice, where happiness starts with a smile. If you are interested in any of my packages or wish to be a guest on this show, then you can contact me via my social media pages, Karen Kelly Podcasts, or send an email to Kelly at btinternet.com.